Go ahead and have a seat, Vertical Church. Good morning. This is going to bug me if I don't move it. Well, sitting at the airport in Dar es Salaam, Tanzania, I was ready to accomplish massive things for God. Alex and I had only been dating for a few months, and I said, hey, Alex, let's go to Africa this summer for the sake of the gospel. And so I just started emailing dozens of mission organizations, and none of them would allow a dating couple to come on the same trip. Side note, that's, that's probably a wise policy for obvious reasons. So I said to Alex, listen, I know missions organizations take care of the flights, work out the details, ensure the trip, provide the local knowledge as well as the language translation, translations, but I mean, who needs them really, right? So I just, guys, I just started emailing people in Africa, like hundreds of people, and I said, hey, my girlfriend and I want to come share the gospel there. Do you have a place to stay? And eventually I got a sketchy email back from a YWAM base in Morogoro, Tanzania, and the email was a bunch of broken English, but at the very end, I could make out, I pick you up. And I'm like, good enough for me. So we hop on a plane, we're at the airport, and the guy is not there. We had just spent like thousands of dollars to get here. We wait 30 minutes, then an hour, then two hours. Meanwhile, we don't speak Swahili like a lick of it. And so I'm starting to think maybe this missions organization was the way to go, right? Three hours in, guy's still not there. Three and a half hours in, he finally shows up, praise God, uh, and he drives us into the bush of Africa. The next morning, I began prepping all my sermons that I'd be preaching in these churches all summer long, and the YWAM people came to me and said, hey, what we really need for you to do, what would really be a blessing to us, is if you worked in the garden. And to make a long story short, I spent that entire sermon or summer gardening instead of preaching. And I felt like such a failure. I felt like God thought I was a failure. I mean, I, I was going to do big things for him, right? Big, glorious things. Preach the gospel, heal people, bring revival to Africa. And I didn't do any of those things. I was disappointed, and I thought God was too. Why do I share that? Because I think most of us here believe that Christianity consists primarily in what we do for God. A.W. Tozer writes, We have accepted the monstrous heresy that noise, size, activity, and bluster make a person dear to God. And there's a lot of reasons why we believe that. I think one of them is because we're Americans. America is the epic story of an, a small, independent people rising from a footnote in history to become the greatest world power. And as our nation has ascended to the top, our culture has learned to value success and achievement and winning as moral virtues. American culture is enamored with success. It's why we love celebrities so much, right? Because they made it. They rose to the top. They accomplished what everyone else wants to accomplish. We have the American dream, the notion that anyone can come from anywhere and th through sheer grit and determination, they can too rise to the top. 
Richard Rohr has coined this the winner's script. The belief that we need to win at things in order to establish our value and prove our worth. And listen, Vertical Church, outside of sin and Satan, there is nothing doing more harm to your relationship with Jesus than the winner's script. Maybe you're a college student with the underlying assumption that you will be more useful to God once you get your degree and land your dream job. Maybe you're a parent who feels like God's pleasure in you depends on how well you parented this week, how clean your house is, and if you manage to get in the Word every day this week or not. The reality is most of us believe God will delight in us when we just all finish that sentence differently. He will delight more in me when I'm five pounds lighter, when I'm sharing my faith regularly, when I overcome my greatest sin struggle, when I start doing whatever that is, when I stop doing whatever that is. Loved ones, we need another author to write a better script. And that script is Mark chapter 1. Open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1, it's a summer day in AD 26. Huge crowds, uh, maybe as many as 300,000 people have come to the wilderness to get baptized by John the Baptist, but today, everything is about to change. See it in Mark 1, beginning in verse 9. This right here, guys, this is the word of God. It says, In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. So John is just baptizing people, feel the scene. He looks up, he sees Jesus, and he immediately knows. We get a little more insight in John 1, verse 29, which says, The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Though John and Jesus were cousins, they presumably have never met until this moment. Uh, Luke chapter 1 tells us that John grew up out in the Judean desert, so they likely had never come across paths or cross paths until this moment when Jesus shows up to get baptized by John. And in Matthew's account, John says what everyone's thinking. I can't baptize you, Jesus. I need you to baptize me. To which Jesus responds, Matthew 3, 15, no, you must baptize me so that I can fulfill all righteousness, is what Jesus says. In other words, Jesus tells John, God is bringing righteousness to the earth, and listen, it starts with this, my baptism. Why does Jesus's, uh, what does Jesus' baptism mean? Point one, if you're taking notes, Jesus has united himself to me. That's what his baptism means. Jesus has united himself to me. Jesus gets baptized to show that he has come into the world to be a savior for sinners, and his baptism shows how he will become our savior. By standing in the river in whose waters repentant sinners had symbolically washed away their sins, Jesus says, take that water, polluted by the sins of the crowds, and pour it over my perfect, sinless 
be. At his baptism, you guys, Jesus is uniting himself to sinful you and me. God in skin comes down to the sinful shores and is not sprinkled, immersed in a river of sin. Why? So that he can carry those sins to the cross. See, while our baptisms look back to the cross, Jesus' baptism was looking ahead to the cross. Remember, guys, it's always about the cross, right? It's always heaven. Read Revelation. Heaven never gets over the cross. So even here, again, it's about the cross. How do we know that? How do we know Jesus' baptism is pointing to the cross? Because Jesus himself refers to the cross at his baptism. I, I think I have the slides here. Luke 12, 50, Jesus says, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it's accomplished. And when James and John asked to sit in a place of honor in heaven, Jesus says, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, here it is, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? You see, loved ones, Jesus had two baptisms. One to be immersed with all of your sin so he can be united to you and one to be immersed with the full wrath of God for your sins so you can be united to God. What does Jesus' baptism mean for us? (laughs) It means I'm free from the penalty of sin. That's what it means, guys. We are free from the penalty of sin. This is the gospel right here. This image, Jesus' baptism, this is the gospel. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's what's happening here. When Jesus was baptized in the summer of 26 AD, all of our sins, turn to your neighbor and say all of them. Come on. No, no, no. All of your sins. All of your sins. The ones you have committed. Listen, the ones you are still currently committing and the ones you haven't even committed yet. All of those sins were poured onto Jesus' sinless body so that Jesus could go and experience a second baptism, one that you will never experience, a baptism of God's full wrath. Because Jesus was fully immersed in God's holy hatred for your sin and my sin, we will only be immersed deeper and deeper into an ocean of grace. Believer, Jesus just got baptized to reveal to you that he is here to take on your sins so that you can be free from the penalty of sin. Sure, you might punish yourself for your sin. Others might make you feel bad for your sins, but God will never punish you for your sins. You are free. Guys, we are free. Because Jesus had got baptized twice, once in a river to take on our sins and once on the cross to take them off, if you are in Christ, you are free. That's what's happening here. But there's even more glory in verse 10. Look down at verse 10. It says this, And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens 
being torn open. The word translated torn open is significant. Guys, remember last week, Mark told us that everything the prophet Isaiah wrote was ultimately about uh, Jesus, the same Jesus who's standing right in the river with John. So did, did Isaiah see this day coming? He did. Isaiah 64, 1. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. We pray this prayer a lot at this church. That the mountains might quake at your presence. Isaiah knew there would be a day where God himself would rend the heavens, literally tear open the heavens, and that day is Mark chapter 1. And the word for torn open is used in one other place in the book of Mark. Mark 15, 37. Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. You see, everything about this scene is pointing to the cross. Another word to note here is seed in verse 10. He saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him, note this, like a dove. Underline that in your Bible, like a dove. Why a dove? Well, remember, when God judged the world with the flood, it was a dove that Noah sent out. And when the dove found a place to rest, it signified to Moses that God's judgment has passed over, something new has begun. The Spirit here, like a dove, descends on Jesus, signifying to us God's judgment is passing over. Something new has just begun. His name is Jesus. Verse 10, read it now. He saw the heavens, this is Jesus, being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove and a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. How do you think, how do you think God said that? Do you think it was, it was louder than that? Was it, you are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. Was it a whisper maybe? You are my beloved son. With you I am would have been a loud whisper. Whatever the volume was, we see the beauty here. The sun physically standing in the water, the spirit visibly descending upon him, and now the father audibly voicing his approval. You are my beloved son. With you, Jesus, I am well pleased. Point two, Jesus was approved on my behalf. And yours. You might say, wait, Jesus was approved. Can we really say that God feels towards Jesus here? Uh, what God is feeling towards Jesus here is what he feels towards us? Amazingly, yes, we can say that. Remember, because Jesus has united himself to you, theologians call this union with Christ. We talk about it all the time here at this church. What God feels towards Jesus he now feels towards all of those who are in Jesus, as the New Testament describes us. Moreover, the word God calls Jesus here, beloved, this is my beloved son, he calls us in Romans 1-7 to all of those who are loved by God, speaking to us. 
So on the authority of Scripture, Christian, you can say, because Jesus has united himself to me, what God said over Jesus at his baptism, he said the same thing over me at mine. Praise God. See, God the Father saying over Jesus, I just love you so much. I'm just so happy with you. Now, as American Christians, we just have this so backwards. When we talk about Jesus, here's what it sounds like. Oh, dude, let me tell you about Jesus. Okay, so first, he was born a virgin. No one has ever done that. Then he starts his ministry by turning water into wine. Then he calls his disciples. He confronts the Pharisees. He heals the sick, raises the dead, challenged Herod. And then he voluntarily died to become the Savior of the world. But then on the third day, Jesus rose again to victory, proving to everyone that he defeated sin and Satan and death. And then he ascended to heaven. And as he's ascending to heaven, to the right hand of God the Father, the voice from heaven says, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. And what's so crucial for us to realize this morning is that is so out of order. Today we see Jesus getting approved by his father as a 30-year-old man who hasn't done anything public or notable yet outside of a couple small accounts in Luke's gospel. As far as we know, he hadn't healed the sick yet, raised the dead, confronted any Pharisees, preached any sermons, or made a single disciple. Guys, he's just a 30-year-old guy with a day job. And in that place... Heaven opens up, and God says, I am so pleased with you. Why was the Father so pleased? He hadn't done anything yet. Well, the answer is in verse 11. See it. Here's the ground phrase. You are my beloved son. It was their relationship, not Jesus' accomplishment. Jesus had spent all eternity abiding in the love of his Father. And then he had spent 30 years here on earth perfectly remaining in that love. So what pleased the Father was not Jesus' accomplishments. It was their relationship. It was their intimacy. When people think of the life of Jesus, they think that his defining moment was on the cross. I just disagree with that. Jesus, that might have been Jesus' most decisive moment, but his most defining moment was right here when the Father defined him. You are my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And because Jesus had the Father's approval before he did anything, now he's freed up to lose everything, including his own life. The Father's approval frees Jesus to never live for God's approval, but to live from it. And the Father's approval over you through the finished work of Jesus Christ frees you up to never live for the Father's approval, but always from it. If I could just get you one sentence to take home this week, that's it. I'm free to live from God's approval, not for it. That is so countercultural. That is so anti American. 
The winner's script tells us we have to overcome. We have to triumph. We have to perform. We have to prevail for God to say, with you I am well pleased. And union with Jesus says, no, no. When God spoke that over Jesus, he was speaking it over everyone in Jesus. Therefore, if you are in Christ, the soundtrack of your life is you are my beloved daughter. With you, I am well pleased. You are my beloved son. With you, I am right now so pleased. And those words of approval come not at the end of the Christian life. After you've defeated your sins, after you worked out all your issues, after you're just an awesome Christian. No, no, your father's approval comes at the very beginning of the Christian life when the Spirit enters you and you haven't done a dang thing yet. Turn your Bibles over to Luke chapter 10. I want to show you something here. Luke chapter 10. Here there's a group of disciples just labeled the 72. Apparently they were like Jesus' B team, Uh, because we've never given any of their names. We're just told there's 72 of them. Now, just imagine how they felt. Jesus had just spent all night praying. He comes down, and he invites the 12 into an exclusive relationship with him. I can just see the 72 standing there, just, just hoping that Jesus calls their name, just leaning in, thinking, Peter, really? Right, Judas? There's no way that's going to end well, right? Just hoping that Jesus would call their name. Jesus chooses the 12, and then he lumps all these people just into the 72. And we all know how it feels to be outside of something, don't we? To be lumped in a group with the rest. Is it possible that the 72 wanted to feel, uh, wanted to show something to Jesus? Is it possible that they felt like they had something to prove? Like, man, if Jesus can just see this, I'll get in on the inner circle. Well, their moment came. Jesus sends them out in Luke chapter 10, and they have crazy success. They preach the gospel, they heal the sick, and they even cast out demons. And as they return to Christ, it appears like they're thinking, maybe Jesus will reconsider our value when he hears about what we've done because they say in Luke 10, 17, meet me there, Luke 10, 17, the 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. It's like they're saying, listen, the 12, they had issues with demons, but look, Jesus, even the demons subject to us in your name. And awaiting applause, they get none. Instead, Jesus tenderly says, Luke 10, 19, Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Whenever I've read this verse in the past, I've always pictured like a giant dusty phone book, one that like Santa Claus would have, right? It's just a name, bullet point list, Chris Osmus, Alex Osmus. Is that what's happening here? Is that what Jesus is talking about? And if so, how does that deliver me from the pressure to perform? It's not about the book. 
It's about the names. Jesus is not emphasizing a book. He's emphasizing, see it in the text, your names are written in heaven. Do you see what Jesus is doing? He's putting his finger on their deepest need. He's saying, I know you're trying to impress me because I didn't call your name, but listen, I did call your name. But not just to be written in the Bible, to be written in the book of life. Loved one, do you, do you feel like you need to impress Jesus? I, I, I'll answer that for you. I know you do. We all do. Everyone everywhere does. We feel like we, we got something to prove. Like he didn't waste the grace on me. And so we return to Jesus every week, every day, saying, Lord, I never looked at porn this week, and I read my Bible every day. They return to them with joy, saying, Lord, I, I never lost my patience with my kids, and I cut my phone usage down by a half. Lord, I shared my faith this week with my friend, and I made it to church. The winner's script is deeply embedded in all of us, and the Lord's response to it is, do not rejoice in those things, but rejoice that your name is already written in heaven. Oh my gosh, guys, what joy and life and freedom we could enjoy if we just believe that we don't have to earn God's favor. We've already have it. What joy and life and peace and calm and rest we could experience if we knew that we don't have to succeed or accomplish or win at anything for God's approval. He's already pleased with you. He's already pleased with all of us just because we're his kids. John 1.12 says, 1 John 1.12 says, But to all who had received Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. That there alone is the grounds for his delight in you. That alone, that through Christ you have become a child of God, his child, that alone gives you all the approval that exists Blood-bought adoption makes us dear to God, not any spiritual success you could achieve. Vertical Church, this is how we break free from the incessant pressure to spiritually perform in order to impress Jesus. Listen, God is not waiting for some spiritual success before he says, my son, my daughter. And he's not waiting for you to defeat some certain sin before he says, with you I am well pleased. Right now, already, while you're struggling, Jesus, sorry, the Father says, I'm so pleased with you. Romans 8, 14, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons and daughters by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, 
And heirs of God means fellow heirs with Christ. You guys, if you, if you don't do a dang thing for the rest of your Christian life, if you die in a car accident on the ride home today, through Christ, your name is written in heaven. Through Christ, you have right now, in your sin, in your struggling, you have God's full acceptance and approval. Through Christ, you are a co-heir with him, which means everything that belongs to Jesus, hint, that's everything, also belongs to you. Through Christ, you have eternal life. Through Christ, you have Christ's very righteousness, so we don't need to perform any more to establish any worth. Christ has already spoken it over you. He did so in the summer of 26 AD over Jesus Christ. If you don't hear anything else today, just hear the voice of your Father saying, you, yes, you, are my beloved daughter, are my beloved son, and with you, not in spite of you, with you, I am well pleased. So does that mean then we just roll over and we stop fighting sin and we stop sharing our faith and we stop striving for spiritual successes? Of course not. Just the opposite. Like Jesus, having God's full and final approval at the start of our Christian life gives us sovereign safety and sovereign power to fight sin, fight Satan, because we already have everything that sin is offering. It's the difference between rowing and sailing. In fact, we see one example of it in verse 12. Look at Mark 1, verse 12. It says, The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. So in the same day that heaven opened, now hell opens, and Jesus is tempted by Satan himself. Now the other gospels, specifically Mark, go into great detail on Jesus' temptation. We're not because Mark doesn't. Mark just kind of hits it. But I do want you to see one thing. This is it. Why was Jesus so powerful at withstanding temptation? Why was Jesus so powerful at withstanding temptation? Jesus stood against sin and Satan because everything Satan offered, Jesus had just received in his Father's approval. You've got to look at the context, right? The temptation comes right after the approval. So Mark 4, 3 says, Satan first tempted Jesus with food. He had just been fasting for 40 days, right? So he's hungry. He tempts him with food, and Jesus withstands it by saying, man does not live by bread alone, but what? By every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus is saying, God's words, God's mouth, they just said, I'm beloved son. They just said, he is pleased with me. Listen, Satan, I don't need bread. I'm good. 
Do you see, Satan says, okay, then throw yourself off the temple and see if God will command his angels to catch you. To which Jesus replies, you shall not put the Lord to the test. Translation, listen, I don't need God to catch me to prove that he's for me. He just told me that. He just said, I am his son and he loves me. Lastly, Satan says, okay, but I will give you the kingdoms of the world if you will just bow down and worship me. They will bow down at your feet, Jesus, and worship you. And Jesus says, be gone, Satan. You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. In other words, I don't need the kingdoms of the world to bow down and bless me. The God of the universe just came down in the spirit and blessed me. You guys, everything Satan and sin offered was already given to Jesus in his Father's blessing. In other words, Jesus was too satisfied to sin. And therefore, he was free from the power of sin. And here's the thing Satan doesn't want you to know. You are also. Next point of application, I'm free from the power of of sin. This week, when you are tempted, know that whatever sin is trying to sell you in that moment, fulfillment, satisfaction, peace, relief, rest, joy, all of that has already been given to you in your Father's approval. So you don't need to row against sin. You can relax back into your father's approval and sail. For most of my Christian life, I have been chasing the significance monster. I've believed that if I could just succeed at certain things, then I would earn my place in the kingdom of God. Many of us here today are seeking to earn that place in the kingdom of God. Maybe it's why you came to church today. Beloved ones, the kingdom of God is not earned. It's a gift. It flows from the unearned love of the Father. Since Eden, all of us have been on a similar journey, facing down insecurity, unsure of our worth in the world. We just ache for that place where we are unconditionally loved and no longer needing to prove our worth. But contrary to the American dream, any success here will never be enough because the ache for approval we feel has an appetite for the eternal. The road that leads us to full and final approval is the path of grace, not works. And it winds down to a father who runs to greet you and removes the burden of performance and clothes us with, with Jesus' robe of righteousness, a robe that perfectly fits on the worst of sinners. So vertical church, the pressure is off. You have literally nothing to prove. You are free.
because Christ has united himself to you, you can now live every single day, no matter what you did yesterday, from the Father's approval, not for it. So this week and forever, may the loudest voice we hear all the way home to heaven be the voice of your Father saying, you are my beloved son, you are my beloved daughter with you right now. I am well pleased. Let's pray.